Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there. This is JJ Moll. I'm your host for today on New Books and Psychoanalysis. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by Hannah Zeeman um, to talk a little bit about her new book, The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy. Um, so just by way of introduction, Hannah Zeeman is a lecturer in the Departments of English and History at the University of California, Berkeley, and is on the executive committee of the University of California, Berkeley Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society, and on the executive committee of the Berkeley Center for New Media. Additionally, she is a visiting fellow at the Columbia University Center for the Study of Social Difference. Her first book, A Distance Cure, is now out from MIT Press, and she's currently at work on her second book, Mother's Little Helpers, Technology in the American Family, also out from MIT Press in 2023. Um, Hi, Hannah. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, So I tend to start these interviews just kind of with the broadest possible question of just how this book came to be. Like if you were to tell the story of the book, how did it come about? Just sort of personally, politically, intellectually, how did you write this particular text? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, So you've invited me to tell it three ways, which is great. Uh, There of course is a personal story. some of my parents are analysts, some are working as, you know, historians or in the larger family. Um, so this uh, was a way of bringing the kind of various concerns of the family firm together because they are quite disparate, okay, of course. Um, but uh, I could have done many different things to do that. Uh why this particularly? Um, I developed across my life a real investment in questions about that access to mental health care, maybe especially because I was raised near or around a lot of the conventions that uh, both make things like psychoanalytic treatment 
so important to so many who receive it, but that there are so few people receiving it was quite um, transparent to me, um, was part of the conversation. Um, and also uh, that media were doing something, not just the kind of narratives of uh, ruining a childhood or hopelessly lesser, but I am a middle millennial. I spent a lot of time on AOL as a kid uh, talking late in the night to strangers um, and doing all kinds of various uh, distanced intimacy, which is a coinage in the book. Um, and of course I know that technology and quote unquote big tech is also a massive contributor to all kinds of social ill. I don't disagree. Um, but that habitual quotidian daily intimate media were also up to something else. And I wanted to figure that out, which brought me to a PhD in media studies where it was very hard to reconcile my two very nerdy interests in the history of psychiatry and psychoanalysis and therapy with my other really nerdy interest in the history of technology. Um, and I think this is quite um, descriptive of the kind of thinker I am, where uh, I just did an additive. Well, what if I put the two of them together? Um, the history of mediated therapy, the history of technotherapy. Uh, so that's what I did um, and began working on this project oh, almost 10 years ago. Um, when, you know, it was an early moment where, yes, there was starting to be a lot of startup interest in, tele in corporate teletherapy, um, but also I, as a analyzand, had been on the phone on and off um, because I was in a long distance relationship, so more distance intimacy. Um, and people were not really talking that much about teletherapy, though lots of people were doing it. Um, and then, of course, there was an intensification across the last eight years or so of work where there are hundreds of millions of dollars of B-series Silicon Valley funding flying around the corporations and then, of course, our pandemic. Um, so all of that to say that the book continually asked me to write it and I asked myself to write the book in relation to all of its many concerns, right? How we find each other at distance when good help, let alone help at all, is so uh, difficult to come by and how communities care for themselves uh, in the face of great difficulty, often for free and often via technology, often by media. And those are the stories that distance care seeks to tell. Yeah. I mean, again, as you're speaking, I mean, as you're talking about your own kind of as you said, sort of additive thinking or sort of patching together that which was sort of already within you. I mean, I think that was something that really struck me as I was reading the book at just the kind of methodological level, or I was just struck by the ways in which um, so many things were sort of patched together within the book in a sort of seamless way. And one thing I was sort of interested in talking about is the extent to which um, you know, as you're saying, so many of the concerns of the text are around mediation and mediating technologies. And so I think, and then I think at the level of intervention and methodology, so much of what you're doing, it seems like, is thinking about technology and thinking about the sort of the archive in a way. And so I wonder if you could take a little bit of time and just talk about the importance of 
your methodological interventions in how you wrote this book or sort of the ways in which you patch together different kinds of sources, be it archival sources or, as you put it in the text, kind of auto-ethnographic sources? And how does that bleed into the kind of semantics of the text itself, if that makes sense? It totally does. Um, Well, there was a lot at play, right? Um, When I started writing the book and I would describe it, people assumed typically that um, I must have a sort of a psychoanalytic method. And it was very clear to say, you know, I'm not a clinician and applied psychoanalysis can be great, but it can also really fail. Um, It can really muddy uh, the sort of the history and politics of what uh, was occurring. And right, the book starts with Freud and goes to our present. Uh, The book was done before the pandemic, but I was allowed to add a coda um, reflecting on the twinned crises of last summer, um, the uprisings in response uh, to the murder of George Floyd, but also, of course, the pandemic. Um, And as they intertwined, in mental health care. So there are a lot of different cases. There are, you know, many cases within each chapter, um, but it's 120 years, I think six countries, right? No one method was going to be stable. But what I was clear about was on the one hand, this is not a book um, of applied psychoanalytic thinking. But on the other hand, there are questions this book wants to ask that absolutely are about how the psyche is negotiating various presences, absences, uh, pasts, and distances. So the, the book's coda, for instance, is a long meditation on what I call the medium inside um, and the status of empathy, right? How uh, and whether or not empathy is the correct thing to strive for and is, uh, is it important that empathy might be muted on screens or not? And is that really happening? So what are the methods? The predominant method is one of, you know, a a deep archival uh, substantiation of of a thing, of a technique, which is therapists meeting their patients at distance on some kind of mediated communication or technology. Those archives run the gamut from letters that are in the Library of Congress, Freud's, uh, to you know uh, archives. I had to actually I opened and saw and had to send back at a famous repository that shall not be named because I was not supposed to see them, a famous treating doctor and uh, patients who might still be living, violating, well, it was an accident. Um, So as I talk about in the book's note on method, I had to do a lot of unseeing, Um, you know, reams and reams of suicide hotline logs that leave all kinds of data behind. Um, But then also the inverse, right? Like the cases where there was no overt or obvious data, right? Because the great thing about mental health care when it goes well is that there might not be data uh, uh, and, or I might not be able to access it as a researcher. So that's where things like oral history were really important to the book. Um, You know, a series of interviews I did with clinicians that helped me think through the CODA, Um, a series of interviewers with uh, practitioners of early e-mental health clinics. Um, And you can check out in the book, there are some examples of the 
absolutely 1993 graphics that uh, scored their, their cyber clinics. Um, using, right, the Internet Wayback Machine, thank you so much, Internet Archive, right, to find the stuff and then screenshot it because it disappeared halfway through my research. Um, all these kinds of redundancies, autoethnography, yes, I made myself use these apps, um, which was not, I would say, the most fun part of my research, but it needed to be done. So all of that coupled together allowed me to have, uh, yes, many sourced archive uh, from which to substantiate this shadow form of psychology, um, which might leave behind even fewer records than uh, normative psychology for precisely being written on the air at distance um, or over pre-email or whatever you have. I mean, I think, I mean, as you were saying, and in a way that I honestly found like so deeply refreshing, like this was not at all a purely theoretical text in the sense that it was not, the set of interventions were not simply about sort of making theoretical interventions into psychoanalysis proper or something like that. You know, I think that something that was really refreshing to me and I think is honestly often within the psychoanalytic domain, often a gaping hole in the literature is just sort of material history um, and sort of a historical orientation, which was something I, I loved about this book was the um, material historical base um, of the text. And so I think I wanted to talk a little bit about what maybe felt to you or what about the, your book's status as, in some ways, a historical text, what about that felt important? Um, you know, because I think that it seems like part of what was being demonstrated in the text is the extent to which particular forms of mental health provision or delivery um, and media and media dissemination are both sort of historically determined and reflective of the period and the material conditions of the period. Um, but then I think, again, as you're saying, are also sort of timeless in this way, or also sort of um, echo one another and reverberate sort of tempor temporally in a way. Um, and so, yeah, I, th I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that, about the importance of history and how maybe history may be does some work at sort of demystifying this sense that technological mediation is something that's like so specific to the now in some way. Yeah. Thank you. So I think in order to do that, I have to, I have to actually start with theory in yeah. a way, or yeah. also to say that the book the book is definitely a history of technology and a media history, but it is also a theory of relating and yeah. of understanding that yeah. we may have overprivileged uh, what it is to be in the same room together as a site of theorization. Um, and yeah. so now this other work has to start. So the distance cure uh, takes as its work. It was always to make a history, right? Again, I'm not a clinician. Um, and uh to make a history of this shadow form, teletherapy, from its inception. And in order to do so, much like some psychoanalysts, I started with what was in the room, what was present to me in the here and now, and started to wind my way backwards and landed all the way back at Freud. 
Um, so of course, in a way, the book does argue that teletherapy is as old as psychoanalysis itself. Freud was a practitioner of teletherapy. Um, of course, my colleagues in the history of technology would say, yeah, well, letters aren't tele proper. And I say, yes, of course not. So it's a prehistory of teletherapy. But I, for the sake of the book, yoke it under a kind of tool and technique of relating at distance therapeutically. Um, and therapeutically has to become broadly defined to look at all the different kinds of cases that make up our contemporary, right? Uh, is a chatbot a therapist? No, and yet is all, often deployed as one. So I look at these kinds of, again, tools and techniques for quote unquote care, which I trouble, mm -hmm. no doubt. Um, so if that was the work that was set out for me, uh, then uh, of course there would always have to be both things happening at once, doing the sort of deep history work, the archival work, and then also trying to theorize what kinds of connection were possible. So in the Freud chapter that takes the turn uh, and each chapter, I really had to learn like an entire new array of things. Uh, and new literatures to understand what was happening, not just because of geography, not just because of time, but because of media. So each chapter really has a tripartitely specific set of theorizations um, that then again do cohere, right? Yeah. All of the cases are very different. From Freud, I move into radio broadcasts, not just Winnicott, but also Fanon uh, and Guattari, all the way to the kind of really hokey U.S. Uh, non-feminist women's radio of the 70s and 80s through to people like Esther Perel today. In the third chapter, I'm talking about suicide hotlines, which always stood opposed to both psychiatry and to carcerality. Uh, but, mm. And when they came to the U.S., were immediately queered and deployed in service of um, the LGBT population in, in California, which then are retaken up and codified as evangelical Christian anti-suicide hotlines. Um, yeah. That chapter might remain the one I'm most invested in um, just because the legacy of these hotlines is still so pressing today and they're still yeah. shifting today. I move through to the history of the elusive chase to build an AI therapist, which again, starts much earlier than many might think. It's in that same moment, the 1950s, as the hotline is forming, another way of batch processing patients, and then to e-therapy, which grows out of the late 1980s and through to our present. So each of those cases has their own kinds of intimacy. Um, I yoke them all under the notion of distanced intimacy, but each has its own subgenre. Each has its own kind of mediated various kinds of almost magic, right? Mm -hmm. What is happening on a phone call is very different than what you and I are doing right now, JJ, which is meeting on Zoom, looking at each other, which is very different than what's going to happen to the person listening to this on their podcast. Uh, and I can't even predict where, right? And the kind of setup there. So I try and think about some organizing principles to hold all of that together. One is the revisions to the frame and how intimacy is always framed. I try and restore the idea that the frame is both immediately offered and then flexible. And that, you know, the question is how flexible before it breaks. So for some, uh, COVID-19 and that turn to teletherapy, for instance, was experienced as a rupture, like the thing broke. 
For others, no, it was a kind of rich and unique moment to think through the flexibility of the mediated frame, which again, I argue is a priori, always mediated. There's always a third in the room and it's media. You can't get away from it. Even if you really, really want to, <laughs> like you can't bargain it away. Uh, and the elements therein, including money. Um, that's one major part. The other, again, is this mediated specificity, like what is the phone doing? What is the actor doing? And then, of course, the political interaction being hosted. And um, it's very different to talk about Freud and Fleece and like two Viennese German buddies uh, who definitely have a power dynamic uh, rather than the anonymous caller on the hotline in 1959 trying out a new service because they're ready to quote unquote end it all. So I trying to balance all of this uh, across the book, uh, which is why it's helpful that each chapter is contained um, to itself more or less, even as the periods might overlap and trip into one another. So again, a dance between the very material history, you know, uh, AI for care is as old as AI itself too, right? Uh, it's a retelling of that whole process of the Turing test is maybe always being about making a human therapist, but it's also about this very longstanding question that you point out, not without difference, but that it's always been pressing. How are we going to find each other uh, when we're not physically proximate? It feels very pressing now, but it's been pressing in the past too. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think as you were just talking, I mean, or in hearing your sort of your gloss of the sort of arc of the book as a whole, I think I was brought back to the to the experience of reading the book. And I think particularly, I mean, I remember getting into the second chapter and the second chapter moves in all kinds of like seemingly disparate and sort of wild directions. And yet, as you said, there's like so much both historical coherence and then thematic coherence, but from the beginning of the chapter, we move from, you know, we're talking about Winnicott's sort of radio program, we're talking about Beyon and the groups that he was running in the Tavistock Clinic, to, to then Fanon doing sort of like doing explicitly sort of politicized and decolonial radio broadcasting, um, finally to like Dr. Laura and Esther Perel, and like, it's, and so What's up? Yeah, Dr. It's hard to invoke Dr. Laura in the same breath as Fanon and beyond, but she's there. She's in there. Yeah. I felt really bad about that. Um, yeah, I mean, the second chapter had the most work to do. So when I, in a way, because um, a, a real plan I made early on was that each chapter was both going to be its own. It would run chronologically and it would be a particular technique. So the radio broadcast, right. but the hotline that was, you know, I chose three pretty exemplary hotlines. They're all early. And then I ran the afterlife and I've written about the hot hotline elsewhere. 
after I wrote what was in the book, really trying to tease out the datafication of the hotline and the problems I see therein, mostly as it, again, breaks down that commitment to being anti-carceral and anti-psychiatric, um, which was always at the core and the heart of the hotline uh, and something that um, I, in whatever way I can, try and continue to champion uh, such a radical form of care. Um, but yes, uh, you know, so the AI therapist chapter also runs as much time as uh, the radio broadcast, but there's, there is more of a cohesive, you know, techno-optimist, um, democratizing promise thing happening uh, for those people working on those questions than the very many kinds of actor we get in the second chapter, who if you put them in a room together, I mean, it would be like a death match. Um, so that was, that was intense to negotiate, right? But yeah. there's really good, um, you know, for our, it's so great to have our predecessors, including John Durham Peters, whose work I value so much and his words open the book. Um, and he supplied a forward for the book for which I'm infinitely grateful, right? A long tradition of trying to think, so what is that kind of address doing on the radio? And so how can we think about what Fanon is up to and Dr. Laura uh, and not say they're the same, yeah. but look at how they are being experienced in the kind of structures radio broadcasting specifically invites, even when that broadcast is failing uh, to a kind of normative standard which is the case Fanon is looking at. And Fanon helps me think about, I mean, so many things, um, and including in this book, the idea that all of our worry about glitch, all of our worry about lag, about standards, something kind of boring from you know, the study of technology actually might be misplaced, right? That we don't need a perfect medium, uh, that, that our complaints about that are telling us something else indeed. Yeah, so that's my response to um, Dr. Laura being visited <laughs> upon all of my heroes. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, I think, I mean, you just sort of, in talking about this of the radio chapter, I'm also now thinking about just, and I feel like you just gestured towards it in a way, is the, the, the question of, of address or the question of modes of address or the question of, um, which I think as you were just talking, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, and you talk really, speak really beautifully in the book about the kind of the particular kinds of, um, particular kinds of modes of address specific to things like the radio from the radio to something like the suicide hotline and the particular kinds of collectivities that get fostered through those mediums and by those mediums. Um, you know, I think in the suicide hotline chapter, you invoke the, the, the sort of intimate stranger mm -hmm. um, and which, which, as you said, so much of the work of that chapter of the hotline chapter, I mean, is really sort of both, I mean, in thinking about, both the kind of like radical anti-psychiatry movement and then as you said, a sort of explicitly queer um, and queer movement. And I was like, I mean, I fucking loved that moment in the chapter. I had not read about the telephone hotline in San Francisco that had the, this sort of the call Bruce thing that had this sort of like cruising um, yeah. undercurrent yeah. to it, you know, that was like so 
amazing and like so beautiful in its own way. Yeah. I mean, I can tell that story if you yeah, want. Yeah, please do. Yeah, please do. Um, so, yeah, this was another moment of what a colleague of mine, um, Courtney Thompson, calls archival kismet, right? Like, again, I yeah. knew I felt I knew I would have to have a hotline chapter. I've worked on a hotline um, yeah. and w- which I did in parallel to writing this whole book, uh, mm. you know, often something like 40 hours a, a, a month um, volunteering on a hotline out here in the Bay Area, um, but not a suicide hotline. So. I, I knew that, but I didn't know just how much I would um, feel for and then have to work on feeling for because transference exists in other modes, um, these actors. So the story of the first American hotline is that to say that people had experimented with dial-in help, let's say, um, previously, often really punishing. Um, various kinds of either always on like church or always on psychiatry, but never a formalized hotline. And um, the operator of the first U.S. hotline is a guy named Bernard Mays, who actually, he died right as I started to write this book. And so I didn't get to speak with him, uh, who goes on later to become chairman of NPR and found media studies at the University of Virginia. So he has like a very wild life. He's British born. Uh, where the very first hotline, which is now called the Samaritans, uh, was located. He came to the Bay Area, which he was kind of unhappy about, um, mostly because he was working in Marin, mm-hmm. uh, which he fa- experiences extremely um, conservative and homophobic specifically. And he would talk about coming into the Tenderloin and letting all of that go right? Being a closeted queer priest, his terms for himself. Um, But he was really shocked and dismayed to encounter two things. One is in 1959, the Bay Area had the highest suicide rate in the world outside of West Berlin, which at this time is completely isolated from the rest of, you know, it's it's in lockdown in the middle of Germany. And then um, also that there was just huge antipathy to the queer community. So that these two communities, uh, the suicidal and uh, the LGBT community were obviously overlapping. So he decided to make a hotline uh, that would neither be psychiatric because of course homosexuality then uh, was still in the DSM and uh, wouldn't deal with the police because of course suicide was still on the books as a crime. Right. So there were two true outcomes, neither of which were acceptable. So he decided to make a third outcome, which was call Bruce. So he took on, Bernard Mays took on an identity of Bruce to give himself an anonymic protection, which I talk about, but a particular one, right? A kind of literal bat signal, which was understood to be a queer hailing. And he went around the tenderloin uh, and wrote um, in matchbooks. Uh, thinking of ending it all, call Bruce in the number and dropped them. So that's the cruising you're referring to, right? In all of the gay bars, which of course were under constant raid in that moment. Uh, this is the lavender scare. And in order to find an office to host, uh, you know, he kept being turned down. Everyone thought he was a sex worker and they, you know, coming and going in the middle of the night. So he tries again and again, and he's getting very discouraged and almost gives up when he meets a landlord and the landlord says, what are you doing here? Like, what do you want? And Bernard Mays says he had to finally say, like, I'm trying to run a suicide hotline. No one knows what that is. It literally does not exist in the United States. Uh, and the 
And I know all of this is really difficult material. And the landlord pulls up his sleeve and says, like this, um, and gives him the office for half off. And then it's history. I mean, almost immediately, the suicide rate began to decline in the Bay Area. There is no causality we can totally attribute, except it's understood that the hotline was really doing something. Uh, it was so powerful because it used only peer care, only volunteer, only free, turned down every single social worker, every single um, person with any training uh, so that they could make their own training that focused on getting rid of bias uh, explicitly. Um, and I just love the last thing I'll say is uh, in that first group of hotline volunteers, a bunch of them were either housewives or secretaries because they were understood to be the perfect neutral listener right, have been trained, uh, you know, by society um, to listen and just take in. Uh, and so Mays went with this work, uh, that kind of ear, rather than Freud's uh, evenly hovering ear, a very different kind of listening. Um, and the rest really is history. That hotline's still extant in the Bay Area uh, and has a, a really intense afterlife, uh, especially in the HIV AIDS crisis um, here as well. Yeah. I mean, again, I mean, I think it's such a sort of central and important chapter. And I think like just so beautifully articulates all of these contradictions about or all this sort of fretting about the, the frame and what is the frame and the um, and what kinds of intimacies can be forged by the frame or within the frame. And what's so amazing about the hotline as a structure. And I mean, also speaking as someone who's like technically in the field of mental health, but then spent the majority of my twenties, like predominantly feeling like in a patient role, you know, like, um, and someone who has also been a part of both benefited from and been a part of all kinds of peer based networks yeah. of support, both through hotlines and recovery communities, whatever it is, like, I feel like there's something so, and it feels like a central question of the book in some ways is, and feels like maybe part of the political question of the book. I mean, I feel like that's what this chapter really artic articulates is how, what does it mean actually to sort of politicize mental health care and think about it as sort of a truly sort of horizontal thing. Yeah. Um, but in any case, I'm sort of rambling now, but I no, mean, it's a, I mean, it's a guiding question from the jump of the book, right? Um, yeah. in the introduction, there's a long meditation on what money is doing as part of mediation yeah. and calling money are the central mediation of the first structure for professionalized psychology and psychoanalysis and thinking through all of the beautiful radical history that psychoanalysis also has to draw on, right? A yeah. whole archive. This is not where I spend the majority of my book because luckily we have really great scholars, um, right? A brand new people's history of psychoanalysis, which I know you've had uh, the pleasure of having Daniel on, yeah. uh, Elizabeth Danto's work, of course, uh, many others. I could go on new book on disalienation. Um, yeah you know, there, there is this great literature. Um, and also saying we also have the opposite history, yeah. right? Um, and one place we see a kind of rebellion or play or experimentation is when media come in overtly. And so again, trying to invite this idea that it is not a therapeutic dyad, even when it's two people, it's always a triad. 
you always have mediation there, um, you know, and once we shift away from the kind of supposed purity of the two, what else can we do, right? The frame is flexible. Uh, so whether that's folks like at the Green Clinic in New York City or um, out here at Pink, uh, the new community mental health track in psychoanalysis, or all of the people working anonymously on uh, you know, the trans lifeline, yeah. which is one of the last remaining hotlines to, I think, really carry out so much of this mission and including being uh, away from psychiatry and against uh, policing. Uh, there is there is this kind of radical care and really frequently it's being offered for very low fee or for free. And these two things uh, under capital go hand in hand um, and I think are the places of hope for thinking about how to have a really rigorous, robust clinical practice that's very much um, itself, right, not attenuated, but enfolds those that care has historically and traditionally, not just forgotten, but uh, visited violence upon, right? Um, and I know this is a massive topic of conversation in clinical communities, like what to do, how to reconcile our theories with our politics. And actually quietly throughout this book, I'm also suggesting, right, well, we've actually been there are those of us, not just me, obviously, but in the book that there are these stories that show that this has been happening across the whole history, starting again with Freud himself, um, who, you know, I really love writing about Freud and thinking with Freud, but also serves as a kind of, I hope, anchoring case to the book uh, that allows people to see like even the father, like, even the father was up to this stuff or the great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather or whatever he would be now. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes me think, you know, I mean, we were, we were talking a little bit before, um, before we started recording and talking about just, I think, um, you know, I think the book, obviously there's a way in which it's getting published in a quote unquote timely way, or it's a timely book, whatever, whatever, a book about teletherapy. We're in the midst of a pandemic where our relationship to mediation and teletherapy has been just brought to the fore in these really big ways. Um, and I think as you were just talking about all of these radical undercurrents, I mean, it makes me think about this historical moment. I mean, you know, I feel like in the last couple of years, there's been such a wealth of attention to and really just an upsurge of mutual aid and support kind of from below, which of course were things that were already happening for decades, prior decade, like happening in communities. Communities were finding ways to sort of support themselves long before the sort of this, this particular catastrophe of our ongoing fucking catastrophe. Um, and so, I think part of where I wanted to land in the interview is just kind of, I mean, I guess in a way, bringing ourselves into the present tense a little bit. Um, and as you were just saying, there's like, there are some narratives in the culture, in mental health in particular right now, this kind of moral panic um, and sort of a certain kind of purity politics around this thought that our 
sort of move to Zoom for teletherapy has somehow infected or is somehow has just sort of completely disrupted um, that which is therapeutic about the frame. And so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about if we could just land maybe there um, in, in sort of maybe troubling that narrative a little bit or trying to, um, yeah. Did yeah. I just ask a question? Was that a question or was that? It's <laughs> so, yeah. and a question. It's like, yeah. let's talk about. Yeah. So I think that, right, this book is not, uh, and I was really glad to see in some of its early reviews, like no one is saying this book is techno-optimistic or like a cheerleader for right. especially corporate teletherapy. It's really not. Right. Um, what it is trying to do is intervene in an idea that this thing that we're doing right now is hopelessly lesser that it's yeah. disembodied somehow as if JJ's body and my body have somehow disappeared yeah. when obviously like my back hurts. I don't know about you, yeah. JJ. I've been sick. I'm like these. sitting on my floor right now. I have a tiny yeah, room and have like, I just like, yeah, I don't have a desk. I'm like literally on the floor right now. So just so everybody knows my body is on the floor right now. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> to really think about, um, you know, not again, a narrative only of loss, nor therefore only one of gain, but to really think complicatedly about all that's happening. Um, so I think almost no one was like, wow, teletherapy sucks and I'm not going to really do it because then no one can see me and that's better than doing Zoom, right? People understood the turn to Zoom or whatever weird proprietary medical software people are using or FaceTime as a kind of lifeline. And I think it really is and was. But I think, again, um, embedded in that is something that, again, came up throughout the whole book, which is that this is crisis conditions, right? That that was true when Freud started doing the teleanalysis with little Hans. It wasn't a national crisis. Little Hans was scared of horses and wouldn't leave his house, right? He was agoraphobic. He was five and he needed care. And the way they did it was via letter writing. Or, right, in World War II, yes, the bombs were literally dropping. Um, or, right, uh, the war in Algeria, right, on and on and on. Crisis conditions attend the book. A suicide epidemic is crisis conditions. Um, you know, the, the, the change of the asylum model, flooding the community, right, that's crisis conditions. That's when we see the, the turn to batch processing patients via chatbot, whatever else. Um, but to also think about what happens in a crisis, of course, on the one hand, we have to be very careful. What gets licensed in crisis often stays the same on the other side. Winnicott kept broadcasting for another 15 years after the war's end, and he hated it, right, in retrospect. <laughs> but, you know, it, kept, it, was, it was popular, so it kept going, right? So I think when we think about, well, you know, I would like to do Zoom, but it's convenient. So I feel bad about that. Or I hate Zoom, but all of my patients want to stay on Zoom. Obviously, those kinds of questions are so personal. Um, and again, I'm not a clinician. And even if I were, I would never pretend I could tell anyone what to do. But I think trying to move away only from the idea that because we're at a distance, it's less. It also can be you know, a brand new context in which to see and get to know 
um, someone, whether again, this is new books in psychoanalysis. So analytically the psyche um, and also for supportive face-to-face therapy, there's all kinds of new data too. The play of, of the digital frame, whether that's, you know, the patient who stands over you Uh, or the patient who refuses to be seen or the patient who takes you into bed with them, but at a distance. Um, And again, there's so many patients, uh, both anonymized and not in my book and all the way up through the present, I mean, who really talk about only being able to make use of therapeutic care, of course, in terms of access, of course, in terms of money, uh, of course, in terms of comfortability, but also psychically when they're at remove when there's something happening again in that flexible frame. And, you know, also Zoom isn't a great platform. Like, you know, these two things can be true at the same time. Like we might have pandemic fatigue, let alone Zoom fatigue. Um, So really trying to think these things through what I call at the end of the book, the idea of the medium inside, right? The way we experience being dropped on a call and also dropped internally, the way we experience, you know, uh, distance as freeing, but also frightening, um, the kind of derision it gets. And so just trying to be very careful about, again, you know, anti-tech all we want, but deciding that the thing that allows more people to access, potentially, I mean, it's, it's also not only lived out too, right? We didn't do a very good job of that, uh, but can in these radical incarnations is also lesser, strikes me as something we need to pause on and really consider, um, especially when we see, right, Fanon always uh, in the background saying, actually, the medium can essentially look like it's not working and it's exactly what the people need. Um, to do a particular kind of coming together and collectivity. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I land. Um, and again, the whole book was written long before these latest crisis conditions, but it's not like the pandemic is onto itself a sole crisis, right? Yeah. Um, it is not actually a rupture. It's a, it's, it's a one crisis among many. Um, and so the book is really holding a space for the crises that came before too, that also merited this kind of consideration of how we can help each other if we try. Great. Well, I think that is as good a place as any to land. Thank you so much, Hannah, for taking the time, carving out the space. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.